Hello, and welcome to episode 10 of In the Dirt from the Gravel Ride podcast. I'm your host, Craig Dalton. I'll be joined shortly by my co-host, Randall Jacobs. This week's episode is again brought to you by you. I've been stoked that people have been visiting buymeacoffee.com slash thegravelride to find ways to support the podcast. It's amazing to hear from you and so many international listeners. That's been really fun. We've got people joining from Wales, down in Colombia, Canada, all over the place. So we've got a few bonus perks for members over there, but it's also possible to just buy me a coffee if you love what we're doing here at the Gravel Ride podcast. This week on the pod, we're talking about nutrition on the bike and giving you some resources and things to think about in how to fuel your gravel riding adventures. So with all that said, let's dive right into this week's podcast. Hey, Randall, welcome to the show. <laughs> it's good to be back, as usual, <laughs> our, we, our, bi- our bi-monthly routine. <laughs> exactly. Where, where are you sitting now and where are you heading next? I am in my three-year-old nephew. Wesley's bedroom, the only quiet spot in the house with all these kids running around screaming, uh, just outside of Boston in Waltham, Massachusetts, uh, about to uh, a couple days away from heading back to the West Coast. So a nice little stay in New England with family uh, and escaping just as the weather is preparing to turn along with the leaves. Nice. You've become soft and you need to be back for that West Coast weather. Oh, for sure. Yeah, I, I moved for a reason. Uh, it wasn't because I couldn't stand my family. I love my family, uh, and it's been great seeing them. Now the winters here are tough for sure. Yeah, it makes it. One thing I do miss about the East Coast as a cyclist is that you actually had a cycling season. So there was this notion that for some months in the winter I was going to do something different. Whereas on the West Coast, it just seems like everybody's always going fast. Everybody's always going long because the weather, you know, is relatively decent all year round. So one of the things I loved when I was in my in my uh, faux pro faux pro racing days uh, was I would I was in grad school at the time and I'd take a leave of absence in the spring and come out west and train out here and so by February March I would be flying and you know I'd do a couple of West Coast races and I'd end up back on the East Coast say in like you know April or so. And I'd just be crushing it because I had months of training in my legs and everyone was just like waking up from the winter. Exactly. Like I knew a lot of roadies who, when they wanted to get their upgrade, they would just spend a few weeks on the West Coast or down in Florida and then come back up to New England and just crush it because everybody had indoor legs, not outdoor legs at that time. Yeah. I will say that, you know, you do find ways to train out here. Like I've definitely ridden through. I've definitely ridden through a blizzard or two or gotten caught out in one that I stayed out for too long. And you tend to find my trick was um, I knew where all the Dunkin Donuts were on my routes, not because I wanted to have any of their coffee because their coffee is generally terrible, uh, but because they have hand warmers in the bathroom, the, the hand dryer. So I'd go in there and you know, warm up my hands and that would allow me to go for a several hour ride in you know, five degree weather. <laughs> I feel like you just opened the floodgates for some people who are Dunkin Donuts coffee fans to uh, send us hate mail, Randall. Uh, I, I'm sorry, but it's just not good. It's just not good. It's stale. It's burnt. Um, I, I used to think it was good coffee and then I had good coffee. So I'm sorry. It sounds very pretentious, but, um, freshly roasted local coffee, single origin doesn't have to be expensive. Makes a big difference. I remember actually living in Boulder and the, the cyclists in the mountain town. So like up in Vail, there was a similar sort of microcosm of what we just described where, 
in the Colorado mountain bike series, the people who lived in Boulder or more on the flatlands would be going faster earlier in the years. But once the mountain guys really got their legs underneath them, when the snow had melted, they would come out and crush it. Yeah. Yeah, Boulder is nice. You can ride, um, I used to train there in like January, February, and because it's at 6,000 feet, the air is thin enough that it feels 10 degrees or so warmer because the heat transfer is not as efficient because there are just fewer molecules to bump into to sap your heat. So you can ride there all winter long. It's great. Yeah, and they've got like 300 days a year of sun. It's, a, it's definitely a great place to be. Yeah, shout out to Boulder. Yeah. Speaking of that area, you know, the Belgian Waffle Ride Cedar City event actually happened this past weekend. So of like the major gravel races on the calendar, this was one of just a handful that has managed to kind of pull itself off. Cedar City is, where is it located? Utah. In Utah. Okay. Yeah. And I was actually, you know, one of the gripes I have just kind of personally about the kind of types of events I would sign up for with Belgian Waffle Ride in San Diego. Obviously, it's a phenomenal event, but it's 100 miles of road and then 40-ish miles of off-road. And for me, that mixture isn't kind of enough to make me want to go do that. That's just not my cup of tea. But I tell you, that city Cedar City event... Hardcore gravel. I mean, they were on the dirt 90% of the time from what I saw. It was fun, you know, as a fan of the sport and geeking out. The guys over at Pure Gravel were in sort of a 4 by 4 kind of mini dune buggy and actually chasing the race. And they, what was awesome is they had both a chase vehicle for the men's group and for the ladies. Um, so it was fun just to see it in action. I didn't realize sort of how much I missed just being a fly on the wall of some of these events and seeing the action. So it was a lot of fun. I mean, I hope, and it sounds like from talking to people who were there that they did what they could to be COVID safe. Everybody start, started off in groups of 50. They had masks on for the first four neutral miles. Um, and then from there. So, you know, I, I hope everybody who attended the race is safe and healthy afterwards, but it, it was nice for me as a fan to kind of see something go off. I do look forward to the days when um, we get to a place where, where events without restrictions are, are a thing again, or at least a responsible thing again. Uh, we're, we're probably, uh, uh, you know, a vaccine and, and so on away from that for sure. But uh, that, that festival environment that you get when, you know, before a race, everyone's camping and after a race, everyone's barbecuing and hanging out and so on. Uh, there's a, an element of that that I think I took for granted for quite some time. I think a lot of us took for granted for quite some time. And now in this period of, uh, you know, having to social distance, it's, uh, I, I think we will learn to appreciate it in a whole different way. And when it comes back together, it's going to feel uh, you know, very elevated, very elated. Yeah. You know, and I know I have a lot of event organizers who listen to this podcast and I've actually got a guest I'm scheduling to come on board to talk about the things they did to make a COVID safe event hmm. and some of the things that may just transfer going forward at the end of the day. I mean, we want events, whether they're cycling events or live concerts, we want them all to come back and we want these best practices to be shared. So I'm excited to have that conversation and just put information and dialogue out there into the world. This is actually a conversation I've been wanting to have with you now that I'm heading back to the Bay because uh, we used to host these big, wonderful group rides. And even that, like they're, 
understanding best protocols. I think that that's a conversation that actually would be very useful to the community writ large. Like, how do you organize a COVID-safe group ride? Uh, because that community connective element of of this you know this activity is so core to the activity. Yeah, for sure. Well, you may have noticed since you're looking at me on video that I'm sitting in a closet, and that's not my normal recording studio. So <laughs> I completed my relocation down to Topanga. And speaking of, which is in Southern California, Canyon above, kind of above Malibu, um, a little bit north of Santa Monica. And one of the things when you were talking just about the community is I put out a bunch of things on various forums, including the Gravel Ride Podcast Facebook forum, this thesis Slack forum, and a bunch of public groups I'm a part of, just seeking information about the riding down here. And it was friggin' awesome to see how many people kind of jumped on that and were and sort of thought to themselves, hey, here's a guy who's not from the neighborhood. Let me throw some trails at him. Let me give him some tips. Let me tell him a good bike shop to visit. It was just really comforting to know that the gravel community is out there if you put yourself out there. Well, and it, it really excites me, like this general idea of, I think that there's a, there are a lot of different tools out there for say, like finding routes and connecting with people in local areas and so on, but they tend to be disjointed or they're on forums like platforms like Facebook, which uh, I think at this point, uh, anyone who's not living under a rock is aware of the various uh, you know, negative aspects of being on Facebook, you know, all the distractions and things like that. Uh, and it's something that I've been thinking a lot about. So um, I know you and I have been talking about experiments in online community that facilitate offline connection. Uh, and uh, I think that we'll have something to talk about with, um, with this audience in the not too distant future. Uh, with some of the experiments that we've been running both on the Facebook page uh, and in the um, what has been till now a thesis um, community focused Slack group that we want to really rebrand and transform into something that's more of a resource for anyone who feels called uh, you know, to join this community of, of uh, ethos aligned folks. Yeah, I think there's just a lot of opportunity. I mean, I participate in a lot of forums and I'm often referencing past episodes where, you know, someone's like, oh, do you have any experience with this suspension stem? And I could say, well, why don't you hear from the guys at Redshift? Listen to Steven talk about why he developed that product and get a little bit of his, his insight as well as insight from other riders. So I think there is this huge opportunity to kind of just create a resource where people can go and, and jump in, share their knowledge and receive knowledge. Yeah. Yeah. So we'll be um, announcing the next phase of these experiments in the not too distant future. Um, and we'll, we'll announce it on here and on the Facebook forum and in the, the, the thesis Slack and so on. But uh, once we, we put these you know, updated tools out there, we'll definitely be very keen to get the feedback of, of you know, the folks who are engaged to make sure that we can make it as useful as possible. Yeah, totally. You know, one of the things, the last couple episodes have been kind of breaking things back to basics. We've been talking about gravel bike maintenance and then everyday carry. We've gotten a lot of feedback that riders are, you know, it's, it's a great reset to just kind of check in with themselves and think, am I doing what I should be doing in those categories? So the other area we were riffing on was just kind of nutrition in general. And I wanted to just together share some thoughts for, for new riders and maybe riders who are thinking about taking their performance to the next level about how one might think about nutrition. I'll set the stage by saying neither Randall nor I are licensed nutritionists or have a PhD in exercise physiology or anything like that. 
for those longtime listeners, we've had guests like Dr. Alan Lim from Scratch Labs on who's, who's dug in deep on this subject. We also talked to Frank Overton from Fast Cats Coaching, who talks about winning in the kitchen and gives you tools for shopping. But Randall, I just thought I'd serve that up as a starting point. And let's just riff a little bit on you know, how people can think about nutrition both on and off the bike. Yeah, and, and kind of what this will be a very kind of personal conversation about what we have found works and does not work for us. Um, caveat already given that we're not professionals here and that we would want to fill this out with uh, further conversations uh, with people that we can dive really deep on some of these themes with. But these are pretty, you know, the themes that you and I discussed pre-episode are pretty well-validated uh, themes that we can speak to. So I feel pretty comfortable there. So yeah, let's dive in. Yeah, it's funny. When I started mountain bike racing and doing longer rides, so rides longer than an hour where nutrition starts to come into play, it was quite funny. I, re- I remember my go-to kind of on-bike nutrition was a sleeve of Fig Newtons. And with my crew, that was pretty much all we'd always carry on us. And it's funny, in many ways, I've come back to that being not actually a horrible thing to be bringing out with me. It, it could be much worse. I mean, it's it's not any worse than the de facto candy bars that some companies are selling as uh, sports nutrition. Not to mention the 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 uh, de facto soda water that they're selling as a, a sports beverage. Yeah, it's definitely sort of buyer beware in this market and do your research. There's a lot of good products out there from good companies, but there's also a lot of stuff that's just kind of designed to taste good and and not actually deliver the punch that you need on the bike. Yeah, it's it's a it's a marketing angle to make you feel like you're drinking, doing, eating something good for you or drinking something good for you. But in fact, it's just the same addictive sugar repackaged in, in a, you know, in a different way with a different narrative. I don't know about you, Randall, for me, like I can get up and ride an hour and not think about eating, but it's really when I'm sort of in the two, three hour and beyond mark that I really think about, Hey, I need to be eating and drinking consistently throughout the effort Otherwise, I'm going to find myself in a dark place. Yeah, uh, it depends on when in the day, and it depends on kind of where you at, where you're at with your diet, and so on. Uh, in my case, uh, I have been on a pretty restricted. Well, actually, I don't. That's the wrong word. I eat what I love to eat, and it just so happens that I really don't like eating sugar, and I no longer care really for simple carbs. And that has been kind of a, a practice of looking at my dietary habits and seeing food addictions and so on and realizing these things don't serve me. So in terms of like uh, when I bring fuel for a ride, I generally have something in my bag. Uh, you know, talk about everyday carry. I have something in there so I don't bonk if I decide to go longer or whatever. But my general routine is, um, you know, I, I'm a huge fan of time-restricted eating. Uh, and if this is something that folks are not familiar with, this is the idea of uh, having a time window during the day in which you do all of your eating. And so in my case, my window is generally, you know, between like one o'clock in the afternoon and eight o'clock at night. And that might seem extreme. Uh, and certainly if I was going for a really long ride, I would fuel up. Like if, you know, if I'm doing my big weekend ride, I wake up, I make a big omelet and, you know, I, I fuel up and I'm eating on the bike. But for my day-to-day routine, uh, especially if I'm not exercising in the morning uh, before. I'm up at 6.30. I have uh, coffee with heavy whipping cream and there's no sugar in there. And that kind of uh, primes my metabolism for fat burning and doesn't give me that kind of that uh, that sugar hit and that blood sugar spike. 
And I'm not hungry until one o'clock, in part because my gut biome is no longer, you know, biased towards those microbes that preferably, you know, digest and thus call out for for sugar in the morning. Uh, So that, so if I'm, if I'm going for a, say like an hour run or an hour ride in the morning, I won't eat before. Uh, I'll eat afterwards because uh, you generally don't need to fuel up uh, prior to that sort of ex- uh, that effort in the morning if you're already you know primed to burn f- fat, preferably. So that whole topic of time restricted eating is probably something that's not heard on cycling podcasts a lot. It was certainly popularized in the Silicon Valley with a bunch of entrepreneurs who were quote unquote biohacking, and there was a lot about it. Why would anybody time restrict eat? Uh, because, well, uh, let's see. So I have found, so I have had issues with, say, like what might be described as like attention issues, like, you know, ADHD or whatever you want to call it, which is essentially fight or flight, right? Low level fight or flight all the time, which affects your attention. And what I found, um, you know, before I started this mindfulness practice even, um, is that having a bunch of sugar in my system, not to mention caffeine, which triggers an adrenaline response, amongst other things, um, those two things would put me in this elevated arousal state that would affect my my attention. And uh, not to mention, like you're shunting all of this energy and resource towards your gut to digest it, as opposed to having that resource available for you know, uh, you know, cognition and for focus. So I, I, I kind of fell into this by waking up in the morning and just trying, you know, black coffee or a coffee with butter or heavy whipping cream and then getting to work. And then one o'clock would come around and I was like, I'm not hungry. Or like one o'clock would come around and be like, it's time for me to eat. And so it just happened in a real organic way and it worked super well. Like I could be laser focused for four or five hours at a time, get all my creative work done, uh, and then you know uh, eat you know eat a proper meal uh, around you know after lunchtime. Yeah, it's a, it's an area that I've always been kind of curious about, and and but I've never done it long enough to feel the effects. So I'm curious to continue doing research on that and and see if it's something that fits for me. It I think. Um, and I, I'd love to have an expert on the show to speak more than anecdotally about this, but uh, I suspect that you have to combine it with a like a lower carb diet and getting like general dopamine fasting, particularly as relates to like sugar and simple cards and how that gives you that hit. Because if you're tri- if you have a gut biome that is you know optimized for breaking down sugar, because that's what you feed it then those microbes are going to be putting out chemicals that in turn trigger hunger. And then you won't be able to think about anything but hunger, Uh, which is why like priming the pump with uh, a little bit of like dense fats, healthy fat in the morning is a good way to, to kind of stave that off in addition to just avoiding sugar generally. I mean, so there's a couple different categories, right? We've talked about there's, there's short, short rides where nutrition really isn't a factor. Then there's long rides where, you're out on your own, you're doing your own thing. And mm-hmm. then there's sort of event rides where, you know, you are counting on nutritional support from aid stations and you're not going to be able to control it. Do you sort of view your nutrition differently in those different environments? Uh, I'm not racing seriously anymore. Uh, I'll show up to events and, and want to throw down, but, um, 
back in the days when I was, uh, if I was doing, say, a two, two and a half hour event, um, well, one, I wouldn't carbo load um, the night before. Carbo loading is kind of a myth. Um, it's a way for people to justify carb- carbohydrate binging, um, but actually it'll just screw up your sleep, amongst other things. Um, most people, like a trained athlete, can store about 100, uh, 1,300 uh, calories worth of glycogen that are available for burning, which is not a lot. And so really your bias um, in fueling up for an event is to make sure your glycogen is topped off which is not a huge amount of, of carbs, right? And then as you're riding, that you are replenishing that glycogen uh, through, through sh- you know, basically uh, simple and, and, and you know, uh, a mix of simple and carb- complex carbohydrates, uh, replenishing that as you ride as quickly as possible. And there are a couple of things that have been shown to facilitate that uh, for like shorter high-intensity events. Uh, one of them is actually having some protein uh, in the mix, and so if you look at um, better fuels for like rate, you know, high intensity race day stuff, it's generally a four to one ratio of carbohydrates to protein. And it's not just that the protein's there for, uh, for repairing your muscles uh, and your tissues as you're riding and kind of putting stress on them and, and causing some to break down, uh, but it also apparently accelerates the, the uptake of, of uh, sugar and conversion into glycogen so that it can replenish those glycogen stores. Uh, so it's a kind of a double bonus there uh, in terms of both, um, you know, staving off that, that glycogen depletion, which ultimately leads to bonking, while at the same time also uh, helping you get a, a head start on repair. Yeah, the interesting thing, I, I, you know, my conversation with Dr. Alan Lim and something that I learned during my Ironman triathlon days was just the idea of the amount of calories the body can absorb mm-hmm. in any given yeah. hour. So being the importance being sort of make sure you're fueling constantly, not, not binge eating every two hours. Cause we've certainly all been there in a long event where for whatever reason, we had to keep the hands on the handlebars. We were cranking with a big group. We didn't want to get dropped, whatever you didn't eat. And all of a sudden you start to feel hungry. Feeling hungry is probably the worst sign your body is giving you because it means that you've left eating too late at that point. Yeah. And I would go further and say relying on your feeling or perception to determine uh, whether or not like your fueling strategy is also, you know, not a great way to go, especially for longer events, like anything over two hours, even a two hour event, high intensity, if you're competing at a high level, um, you, you know, as when I was racing, I would have uh, one bottle for water, water and one bottle for fuel. And I would drink a certain amount of the fuel bottle every certain amount of time. And then that would allow me to optimize the specific ratio of macro and micronutrients and electrolytes per unit time as I was going, while at the same time staying on top of my my water intake and being able to like throw a bottle, hand off a new water bottle uh, with each lap. And if I'm if I'm understanding you correctly, you're talking about a liquid calorie source. Yes. And yeah. so in the case of a, like a long event, like a six hour event, um, I was at the time using a product called Perpetuum from uh, Hammer Nutrition. Um, and I would make it like a sludge, basically the thickest thing that would flow through the nozzle. 
and I would have one one bottle that would be, say, 1,500 calories or so. And that would be my primary fuel bottle. And then I'd have another bottle with some amount of electrolytes and maybe some a little bit of sugar for flavor to get it down easier. And I'd have some other fuel sources as well, some solid fuels, um, you know, a banana. Uh, I, I love peanut butter and jelly. I'm oh, sorry, peanut butter and banana on some, uh, you know, multigrain toasted bread. That's a, yeah, it's funny. One of my you know, I got, I got suggested perpetuum in my Ironman days and I just could not choke that stuff down. I do know that those products have evolved a lot over the last decade and they're super tolerable. And what's nice and to your point, knowing that you consumed one bottle of 400 calories and one bottle of water or electrolytes, you're, you were setting yourself up in a good place because you, you knew that it needed to come down. I remember I was so nervous in my first Ironman about eating and drinking enough. I set an alarm for every 15 minutes on my Timex watch. Mm, yeah. So it would just beep and reminded me. And at this point, I'm, I'm quite conscious of it mm-hmm. so that I don't have to do the alarm thing anymore. But it's kind of a good hack as you're learning this. If you're going out for a three-hour ride, just set a timer and, and sort of make sure you're grabbing that water bottle or a little bit of nutrition every 15 minutes. That way you're going to stay on top of it. I would I would throw in that um, it's way more important for a race sort of event where you're at high intensity because those events you're you're generally much more um, uh, anaerobic versus aerobic. So anaerobic, you're burning glycogen preferably. You're using different fuel systems and so on, and you're kind of this is where you're going into your red zone red zone. And then you have your aerobic, which is fat burning, and this is kind of your base. This is the level you could run, go all day, and you're not depleting those glycogen stores as much. And the average person, even even a highly trained athlete, has days worth of fat stores that they can you know mobilize uh, for for you know effort. And so if you're going for like a long casual ride. Um, this is not an excuse to you know eat all the candy and and throw down all the all the calories you can. Like you still should have. Uh, in fact, the lower the intensity, the more you should bias towards real food. Like I'll I'll bring a um you know a baguette with uh, some night with like a caprese salad sandwich on a baguette. Uh, bring that out on a ride and then like sit you know with a nice view and 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 eat it kind of two three hours in. Yeah, I think it's a good good reminder um, to just think about it that way because you're right. When I'm just chilling on a casual ride, it's pretty easy to get real food down. The challenge comes when you, as you said, when you're redlined and you're just scrambling to jam something in yeah. your mouth. That's where sort of the packaged sports goods have come into favor for me. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And the longer you go, the more you need to stay on top of things. But if you're going out for a two, three hour ride and you're going pretty casual, uh, you don't need to throw down six cliff bars. It's candy. Don't kid yourself. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Cliff Park. I did want to circle back on the subject of caffeine because I'm, mm. I'm not a coffee drinker, but I am a tea drinker, which obviously in, in a lot of cases contains caffeine. I do find that on my big rides, I am caffeinating through my sports nutrition products. Mm-hmm. So I'm getting a lot of caffeine throughout throughout those days do you have any thoughts about how do you use caffeine strategically uh i actually i actually got into caffeine because it was one of the few legal um ergogenic aids uh for performance and there's a perception that the primary benefit is the stimulant effect um but actually it's it's much more that 
at least the the last research I read on this, and, and granted, uh, I'm not up to date. So uh, if anyone in the audience uh, counteracts this, uh, uh, contradicts this uh, in in the forums, please, you know, if you have countervailing evidence, please pre- present it. But um, my understanding is that the presence of caffeine will um, bias um, towards uh, mobilization of fat, thus pres- at a given level of exertion thus preserving those limited glycogen stores. And that is a significant benefit of caffeine during an event, is that you're burning more fat at a given level of exertion, and you have fat for days versus glycogen is, is limited. Uh, I'll use, you know, I enjoy caffeine. Um, I, well, I enjoy a cup of coffee. And um, I actually have shifted my my caffeine intake lately. Uh, I think I mentioned to you, I've, I've kind of done like a, an inventory of, of all of my addictions of late caffeine being one of them. (laughs) (laughs) And so, um, like caffeine is, can be useful for riding, but it also, you know, it bonds with your adenosine receptors and keeps you from being able to get good. And so like, that's why I have my one cup of coffee very early in the morning and generally half calf so that I don't have a bunch of caffeine in my system when I'm trying to go to sleep uh, and thus interrupting the quality of my sleep. Uh, it also is associated with adrenaline uh, release, which is not great because uh, that is associated with anxiety and lack of focus and things like that. So definitely something to use sparingly. That's one of those things in my kind of uh, big event days or stage race days, I learned the hard way was I would be consuming caffeine throughout the day. So let's say it was an eight hour long stage or something. I would consume all that caffeine and then I could not rest. I could not take a nap before dinner and it was really negative effect, ne- negatively affecting me. So my strategy in my last stage race effort was, you know, I would only eat caffeinated product products early on in the day. And then I would in- make sure that the rest of my day was, you know, proper nutrition products, but that did not contain caffeine. And I went so far and I I do recommend this, you know, when you pack your Jersey, if you're doing more self-supported or you want to carry your own stuff in an event, make sure to pack it in a way that everything's organized. So, you know, if, you know, if you're wearing a camelback vest, the left side of your vest has caffeinated products, the right side has, has uh, non-caffeinated products, or if you've got a quarter frame bag, just organize it accordingly so that you're grabbing the right things at the right time so that you're looking forward to after the event to what your recovery program is going to look like. Mm -hmm. There's also something to be said for um, the effectiveness of a given amount of caffeine uh, being related to amongst other things, like your, how much caffeine you're generally getting. So if you're on a, if you're having two cups a day, every single day of coffee, um, then your baseline is, uh, I mean, your, your, changes happen in your body in your synapses and so on that adapt to that level of this uh, because your your body needs these you know adenosine to bond to these receptors in order to and that accumulates over time to, to trigger sleep and so if those are pathways are blocked by caffeine you generate new adenosine receptors uh and now you're back to square one like if you can use it for the event it'll be more effective and you don't need so much yeah i remember i used, I used to do that i used to sort of go on a a caffeine hiatus before a big event because I felt mm-hmm. like it would have more of an effect when I got to event day if I hadn't been drinking tea for the weeks approaching. Ab- uh, yeah, absolutely. Not to mention you got better sleep probably 
Yeah. And which is yeah. critical for, for getting ready for an event. Absolutely. I mean, I feel like there's another big episode probably with a sleep expert to talk about sleep and recovery. Mm-hmm. There's so much to cycling. That's why it's such a, an exciting sport to be a part of because there's always something to learn, particularly when you've got big events on your calendar, you've got just things that you can tweak to, to, you know, to improve your performance. Well, that was weird. We had a little bit of a technical hurdle, but I think we're, you know, kind of winding down for the episode. Randall, do you have any more thoughts that you wanted to kind of bring into the conversation? Uh, yeah. And this is kind of a general theme that ties both nutrition with general like wellness and mindfulness, which is, uh, you know, I have been, I've had this wonderful window of time where I can really focus on all of my patterns. And one of the patterns that a lot of people in our culture have, and there's a whole food science industry ready to, to, you know, take advantage of this is a tendency to use food for comfort. And, Really, that's like you have some sort of feeling, uh, maybe it's a difficult feeling, and you go towards food in order, you know, stress eating, right, or binge eating. Um, And you're eating not because your body needs nutrition, but because it makes you feel better for a moment, but then you feel worse afterwards. And I've really been thinking deeply about, you know, what are the foods I put in my body that perpetuate this cycle? And then also the mindfulness of like, oh, I'm having a a difficult feeling, and I just opened the fridge three times. And what am I doing? Why is it that I'm opening the fridge? Am I really hungry? Or am I just like anxious about something? And if it's not time to eat, if I'm not really hungry, then I will replace that with something different. Like I I do herbal teas, I'll go for a walk, Uh, I'll call a friend, Uh, I'll do some push ups. Uh, or, you know, I'll, I'll take some time to do like five minutes of, of simple meditation. And so breaking those, those unhealthy, addictive type relationships with food, which are culture and, and the kind of the, all these food companies are, are preying upon, um, you know, being able to break that cycle, I think is, is core to one of the key goals of a lot of people in, in getting into this experience, which is taking care of themselves, right? I, how many people do you know that like, got to a point in their lives where like, I need to take care of myself and they got a bike. Yeah. Yeah. It's been a wonderful, wonderful sport for that, from that perspective. Just so good for you. Yeah. Yeah. And exercise, like exercise is important. It's critical, but nutrition and what you put in your body, this idea of like uh, Michael Pollan's eat food, not too much, mostly plants and learning how to like cook and prepare simple dishes for yourself that aren't you know, you can identify everything in them and it's not just a list of unpronounceable ingredients of refined garbage that you're you're shoveling down because it's convenient uh, but really being mindful about it i think that's if if anything comes out of that episode out of this episode it would be to encourage people to like learn how to cook simple dishes and to be mindful of when and what they when they put things in their mouth and what they're putting in their mouth and, and why. Yeah. I think that the, the cool thing about gravel cycling in general is that it does force you to kind of look at all elements of your life because the events and experiences can be so big each year for Mm. a lot of people Mm -hmm. looking at these different areas. You definitely see it translating to being a better cyclist, a happier person, a better friend, Mm -hmm. you know, it, it all kind of comes full circle. Yeah, it's it's nutrition is one aspect of of loving yourself. Yeah. 
to taking good care of yourself by putting good things yeah. in your body. Absolutely. Well, I know it's probably about time for you on the East Coast to start putting something good in your body for dinner. So I think we'll sign off for this week. Lovely chatting with you, Craig, as always. Yeah, good to see you and safe travels back to the West Coast. Yeah, we'll see you soon. So that's it for another edition of In the Dirt from the Gravel Ride podcast. We appreciate you joining us this week and every week. Next week, I'll be back with another one of my long-form interview shows. In the meantime, I encourage you to find us on Facebook and join the Gravel Ride podcast discussion forum. We've got a lot of good conversation from gravel athletes all over the world going on. If you're able to support the podcast, please go over to buymeacoffee.com slash thegravelride. I've got a membership program with certain perks associated with it and a number of one-time purchases that you might find valuable. If you're unable to support the podcast monetarily, ratings and reviews are greatly appreciated as they help in our discoverability on most podcast platforms. Finally, a big thanks to all you Southern California gravel riders who have been sending me routes and tips as to where I should explore from my new home base in Topanga Canyon. Until next time, here's to finding some dirt under your wheels. (laughs) 